So as we take this up, we know now God has mercifully and even seemingly surprisingly met Saul as he was traveling to Damascus. And I, I can never get these words out of my mind, and I don't try to. He says, while still breathing murderous threats, he was in the, in the emotional and mental condition of absolute antagonism and enmity when Christ met him. He wasn't at a moment of sadness, a, a moment of earthly desperation. He wasn't at a moment of practical, what we might call need. He was moving in pride. He was living with a sense of self-inflated success. He was going in, in the strength of his natural man to make war against Christ's name and those that had devoted themselves by grace to him. He had no desire to follow Jesus. He had no desire to turn to him. There wasn't this drawn out over a lengthy season drawing of him. Jesus met him that day powerfully and absolutely changed his life. Now, that's not to say at other times God does not work in a more protracted, prolonged, and seemingly patient manner. The point is, all of our experiences of when God was pleased to meet us with his grace may be very different. And it's important for us to be aware of that because humanly speaking, the tendency is to start to think what happened to me and the way I experienced it is the way and ought to happen to everyone. And so this is how it happened to me. So let me put strategic things in place so that I can get to this person, you know, and like we've said before, sometimes, you know, oh, summer camp or VBS or funeral situation recently lost loved one and we think that these circumstances bring someone somehow closer and more sensitive to the gospel that's just our human heart speaking men do not need to be closer and more sensitive they can be absolutely far away estranged as far as the east is from the west they can be absolutely full of hardness of heart and i ask you this can god save them can god break their their sinful sense of earthly success and self-satisfaction and self-righteousness and in a moment reveal to them their worthlessness and his worthiness and their need and bring them don't want us to miss this because I think that maybe this is also part of the problem that's happening here the first thing I want us to focus on is the joining in Jerusalem he comes to Jerusalem and does what we would expect him to do what kind of we would expect one another to do if you and I were to move to another town far away or even possibly travel to a distant location or another world such as Florida for, for uh, the holidays, uh, I would think that it would be in our heart when Sunday rolls around, what begins to stir us is what? Yeah, I want to be with 
of God's people. I want to hear his word. I want to sing his praises. Those kinds of things move us. And so we look to join with them. Now, if you were to go to attend a church that you've not been to on any given Sunday and at the door, rather than a greeter, it's a guard. And they say, uh, who are you? And he's, well, hi, I, uh, let me see your card. What? Let me see your membership card. This church is members only. That would be difficult, wouldn't it? Now, there is a sense in which in the kingdom of God, it is ultimately members only, but God alone is the one who looks on the heart. And God is able and does in absolutely mind-blowing ways work upon the hearts of people in ways that would defy human expectation. In the minds, and I would think you might consider it reasonable, of the Jews in Jerusalem, would they be wisely wary of Saul? I mean, what had Saul been doing? He had agreed with the stoning of Stephen. And then after... Uh, experiencing and witnessing the stoning of Stephen and thinking it was a good thing, he was strangely provoked to where I want to make this my passion. I found my calling. <laughs> I am a destroyer of God's disciples or Christ's disciples. That's kind of what was in his mind, wasn't it? And the, he had ravaged depending on the, the text that you have, uh, wreaked havoc in Jerusalem. Men, women, bound in prison, cast his vote for their death. Now he's back and says, hey, I want to join the Bible study. Hey, I want to I I get to know you guys. I mean, I think it would be, not unreasonable for us to think he's run out of people that he knew were Christians and arrested them. Now he wants to infiltrate. You know, he wants to he wants to get inside, find out who are our leaders, who are our people of influence. He, he's going to try to cut us down every last one of us. Some of us, he doesn't yet know we're believers. So what do we do? They're not comfortable with him joining. There is a, a palpable fear, which is understood. It says, in the words, it says, he attempted to join. That's a good thing, right? He knew when I'm back, I need to be with God's people. This is where I belong, with God's people. Like-minded, like-hearted, who love him, who love his word, who love to live for him. This is where I need to be. And he attempted. Did he succeed? No, he was turned away. He tried and was turned away. He endeavored to join, but was excluded. And it says, they were all afraid of him. Now, is it, is it, there's a sense in which we can identify with that, but we do also go back and remember this. What does the scripture say uh, regarding man? What is man that we fear him? Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 28 were this. Do not fear those 
who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy the soul and body in hell. So really, we can, though we can sympathize with their fear, they needed to rise above that, didn't they? But instead of it, it seems that instead of um, investigating, inquiring, uh, communicating to see if it was legitimate, they just didn't want to have anything to do with him. Better safe than sorry. But it's not always better safe than sorry. Because we ought to be sorry if we're excluding any of God's people. We ought to be sorry if we're excluding any of those who love. And I think what is to be even more sorry here is, basically it says this, but they did not, verse 26, the end, they did not believe that he was a disciple. They were convinced he was a likely fake. And I want to be cautious about this because there, there's a part of me that, that, that says, why? And it may be their doubt of him as a man. And it may be also a little bit of doubt or lack of understanding the power and potency of the grace of God. That he is able to take the chief enemy and make him an emissary for grace. That just blows the minds of people. And so they're thinking, no, we know what makes this man tick. And what man can change his spots? Can a leopard change his spots? Can a man change his skin colors? Can anyone ever truly change? You've probably heard that before. And the answer is likely left to themselves. Probably not. But the real question is this, is there anyone that God cannot truly change? And maybe they weren't thinking of that. Because if it was merely hesitation, I might say, okay, very understandable. It wasn't merely hesitation. It was utter exclusion. Kind of like, like no, I mean. That God saved me and my neighbor and these people. That's understandable. And that's within the purvey. But, the, but he would save them. And we've got to be reminded of this. Even as we ought to be the people who by grace rise up and don't compromise the scriptures. The scriptures remind us how idolaters. And that's easy to overlook. But, but greedy. Covetous. Thieves, adulterers, homosexuals, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those whose life practice and life pattern are these sins, it indicates they do not know God. But remember, the scriptures, as Paul writes, says this, but such were some of you. And those words we need to, we need to recognize. Though, though there are many, if they continue in that sin, if left to themselves, they will be excluded. God can take those who may indeed be practitioners, promoters, and even have pride in their perversions 
and, and be names and faces of evil movements, God can change them. I'm pretty sure that, you know, you think of, of certain individuals in your mind. I could possibly mention, and you just use your mind for a second, maybe particular politicians. You know, I could, I could mention a name or two of people whose, whose intent is godless. And you might tend to think, too far gone. I just want to remind you, how far can someone go that God cannot find them out? Even if they go to the heights of heaven, a remote island in the sea, if they go to the depths of Sheol, is there anywhere that they hide themselves from God? No, and there's nowhere that, no place that God is powerless. We, we remember this when we go back, well, um, but it's one thing if somebody is sick but can't, and he makes them better. But if they're dead, what can he do? And we, we say, well, he, normally speaking, among the general practitioners of, of power in the early days, they might be able to manifest something. But they would die, and what would Jesus do? As they're carrying out that widow's only son... Uh, being carried out to be burned on the pyre. Jesus walks up, lays his hand on that, and raises her son from the dead. Yeah, but what would happen if someone died and four days passed by? So that likely stench and beginning decay has set in. Now it's too far gone, right? But you remember Lazarus, don't you? The brother of Mary and Martha. And what did Jesus do? He said, Lazarus, come forth. Now, I, I, I ask you this. Was that a lot harder for him? Than making the blind see? Making the lame walk? Yeah, there's, I, I, I'll, there are verses in the scripture that clearly say nothing is too hard or nothing is too difficult for him. I could actually even state it in, a, in another way. Nothing, not only is nothing too hard or nothing difficult for him, nothing's hard. Nothing's difficult. You know, I, you and I cannot make or manufacture light automatically. We have to get a bulb or turn it on or light a fire or something. God can do what? Let there be light. And what happens? There's light. And separate the water from the land. How does he do that? Just the power of his word. And, and, and those are small things to God. Because when you do begin to think of it. That it's speaking of his creative act and power on one little speck of a planet in the scope of the cosmos, the universe. How many stars are there? You don't have to know. How many galaxies? How many planets? I mean, we as, as little weaklings that we are, we're still trying to figure out a little bit about Venus and Mars. You know, we got little rovers on there trying to get a little bit of water samples and guessing 
this and guess. We, we, we are still clueless. You know, might make some people uncomfortable, but I think even terrestrial earthly scientists are oft a bit clueless about even what goes on here. <laughs> okay? Uh, because they have not, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And they have not the fear of God. They have not the acknowledgement of God. I mean, so they, they start at a point of error. And if you start at a point of error, it's really hard to get to the truth. Yeah. You know, I mean, imagine trying to get somewhere and, and the whole time your, your uh, GPS, your maps is giving you the wrong location of where you are. I mean, you're never going to get to the destination, even though you think you can see it. It's showing you to be in the wrong place. That's where man doesn't get it. Man's in the wrong place. It, it, but when God reveals it to you, and he reveals what place you're in, and then shows you himself, it doesn't matter how bad you were, as Saul was. Remember, Saul calls himself the chief of sinners, doesn't he? unworthy to be called an apostle. And, and, and it's so amazing that, that God would move him like that. Even the people saw him as a chief of sinners, a chief enemy of Christ. And yet God saved him. God made him the apostle to the Gentiles. Through him planted more churches, it seems, than through any other apostle. And through him gave us more scripture than through any other apostle. So the one who deemed himself least is the one God seemed to use most. Hmm. I wonder if sometimes the first will be last and the last will be first. I wonder. Or do we wonder? And yeah. And so we see this fear. Uh, but, but there's no need because God can change anyone. Jeremiah 32 says this. A few verses just for our worship. Ah, Lord God. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, as we just spoke of an example. And by your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. I mean, if God can make light and God can do all of these things, can God not? And God can look upon a person. Christ can say to someone who's dead, live. And what happens? They lived. Can that same God to the heart of man and say live, say change? And what happens? Well, well, when Lazarus was in the grave, there began this epic battle between death and life. And we never knew who would win. No, 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 no epic battle. God said, Lazarus come forth. What happened? Life. When God said, let there be life, what happened? Not an epic, eternal battle between light and darkness. No, no, no. Light happened. When God says, you are mine. When God pours his love into our heart. When God, in a sense, as the scripture says, calls us to himself. What happens? Well, some people say, well, we got to decide whether we're going to answer or not. No, it's not a phone call, people. <laughs> it's not that kind of thing. It's not, is the light going to respond? Is the water and earth going to respond? When God calls, 
it happens. Amen? Yes. And so we are thankful for that because when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive in Christ Jesus. That same glorious picture. Um, now, his disciples, remember, when Jesus was, was talking about the rich man went away and did not want to repent. And they were, Jesus says it is very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And he was speaking quite gently at that point, but it was enough to provoke thought and question among the disciples, right? Oh, if it's hard for a rich man to enter, they basically say these words in Matthew 19, 25 and 26. His disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished and said, who then can be saved? If the best and seemingly blessed among us can't be saved. Then, uh-oh, uh here's a problem. Who can be saved? I mean, if, if, if the best and blessed can't get themselves there, then what's the condition we're all left in? Uh-oh. But then what does he say? You know it well. Beautiful words of Jesus. This is in Matthew 19, 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I mean, just love that. So who can be saved? Who can be saved? Well, with man, this is impossible. Nobody can save themselves. Nobody makes themselves savable. We're saved by grace. Because of the mercy of God looking at an unworthy sinner and pouring his love on us. And saying, I am yours and you are mine. Amen? Oh, and this is what happened to Saul. And they, even the early disciples, were hesitant to believe it. Brothers and sisters. Don't doubt. That God can save. The worst among us. Some of us look at ourselves. Depending on what providential experiences. We had before our conversion. And say I, I can testify. To that. Because uh, among the worst. Who have ever been. I'm clearly in that category. <laughs> and God saved me. So if God saved me, he might yet have mercy on any. So you know what we do? We pray for all kinds of men, rich and poor. We pray for those who persecute us, who mistreat us and abuse us. We pray for our leaders and governors and those in places of high authority. And yes, yeah, sometimes our hearts think, man, there is no hope for them and no hope for this. Yet in them and in us, there's no hope, but what? Hope in God. There is always hope in God. Where we do not know what his purpose is yet. We look at around us and we see that things be, seem to be slipping and a sliding. You know, that there seems to be an ongoing degeneration and decay of Western civilization. Nonetheless, can God yet still hold sway? 
If God was so pleased, could we yet live in the age of another great awakening? Where God might be pleased to pour out his spirit and stir people to a more fervent preaching of the gospel. And that many might come in earnest by his grace. Could it happen? It could. Do I doubt it in my humanity? Sometimes yes. But do I doubt that God has the ability? No. Let us never doubt that God has the ability. And what I like about this is, though they may have doubted God's ability, man's doubts for God's ability does not somehow diminish his power. Well, I don't believe, so therefore God's hands are tied. No, God's hands are never tied. And sometimes it's in the midst of our faithlessness. Did the, when the disciples woke Jesus up in the boat, we are perishing. Did they have full confidence he's going to get up and stop the sea? He's going to rebuke the storm? They had no idea the scope of his power. All they knew is they were powerless and they woke him up. And, and, and was Jesus worried? No. He stands up and he did what no one could do and what no one expected. Manifesting his divine power and his person. And God is still doing those things. I want to move on to our second thought this morning as they had rejected him. Verse 27 it says, but Barnabas took him. Brought him to the apostles and declared to them. So, so Barnabas comes and I like what it sees here if you see this. Barnabas doesn't bring him in and saying, okay. Paul, tell him your testimony. Let him have it. No, he, does, he doesn't do that. Here, he goes in and he tells them. Barnabas conveys it to him. He communicates it to him. This is what happened. This is his experience. This is what he went through. You know, and, and Barnabas is an advocate on his behalf. And Barnabas, remember, his name is son of encouragement. Right? He comes alongside and he encourages. And actually his encouragement is such that after he shares the testimony that he has heard, his own sense of the life of grace at work in Saul, they accept it. And he goes in and out among the church. It overcomes it. But I want to just draw a brief attention, kind of just by way of, of soaring overview when I say soaring, that means if you're taking notes, you're going to have to start rip-roaring. It's going to go a bit fast. Just want to note this. We take a brief look at Barnabas the bringer. He's always bringing something. We are first introduced to him in Acts chapter 4, verse 36 and 37, where Barnabas is bringing money to give to the uh, apostles that they'll use for the needs of the church. Where he sacrificially sold and he, he brought that money. What did he get from it? Nothing temporal. Nothing earthly. But, but he's, he's a bringer and a giver. Here's our second introduction to him. And in Acts 9.27, Barnabas took him and he brought him to the apostles. So he goes to the apostles and he gives of his money of himself he goes to the apostles and he brings them Saul and advocates on his behalf in Acts chapter 11 
the church at Antioch, they hear about the grace of God and they send Barnabas down there and he brings to the church in Antioch, he brings them encouragement and exhortation. Acts 11.23, when he came, he saw the grace of God and was glad. And I think that's one of the things that we, we start to, to see about Barnabas. In, in his own life, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. And his gladness was no longer in the fleeting things of this world. So that he could sell some of that stuff and give it away. He saw the grace of God in the life of Saul. And he was glad and he became an advocate on that man's behalf. He, behalf. he comes down to Antioch and he sees the grace of God. L note that. The grace of God... It's not a substance that you spread. You know, it's not something, uh, you know, where, where there's a mist descending. You know, it's not scented in any manner. It, it's the, it doesn't have any of that, but it can be seen. It's seen by its effect, isn't it? And that powerful effect is undeniable. As it accomplishes God's work. And it says that he, he um, exhorted them. He was glad he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord. With steadfast fast purpose. He brings ex exhortation and encouragement. The son of encouragement. Then he sees the need in the church there. So he goes in, in verse 25 and 26 of Acts 11. He goes to Tarsus. And he brings Saul back there. To minister with him. In Acts, the end of Acts 11 verse 25. And following, Barnabas and Saul are bringing money for relief to the saints in, in uh, Judea. In Acts chapter 12, Barnabas is bringing his cousin John Mark to go along with them in, in ministry. In Acts 13, Barnabas together with Saul and others, they go to bring the gospel to the Gentile regions. In chapter 15... Barnabas is one, one who comes bringing questions for clarity to the apostles. Um, in Acts 15 at the end, uh, there is, there's an argument between Saul and, and Barnabas. And they decide to go separate ways. And he is willing again to bring John Mark. Their first missionary John journey, John Mark had departed or left them part way. As a result of that, what was Saul, Saul's feeling? Can't trust this guy. He's weak. But what seems to be Barnabas' thought? Yeah. He was weak. We've all been weak. But by the grace of God, he can make us strong. We can grow in grace and knowledge. We can make progress. Even now, we're not yet what we ought to be and what we will be. Isn't it right? You know, uh, how sad if someone was to judge us on the basis of our mistakes, on the basis of our errors, you know, and, and that, that it's hard not to do that in the world. You can be constantly kind and patient and thoughtful and helpful. But then one day. A bit grumpy. One day. A bit of bad situation. I know a dear brother who was uh, faithful in the Lord. Always helpful, always serving, always contributing. But in the particular church where he was going, on one Sunday morning, he was teaching a Sunday school class. And, and the craziness of the week had him not yet fully prepared. And so as he arrived at church and, and kind of got his, his kids sent in and situated, he want, 
needed to get back to his car, pray and do a little bit more study before his Sunday school class. And as he's going to his car, a lady asks him, hey, can you help me carry from my trunk into the church? And he says, I'm so sorry, I can't do it right now. I really have something else I need to do. And he goes to his car and he gets in the word, spends a little more time in prayer before teaching. But what might happen to that dear lady? This guy is selfish. This guy is not helpful. He doesn't care about me. Well, you know what? To go pray and further prepare, that's ultimate care. <laughs> that's a greater care than carrying something from a trunk. Right? I mean, but, but, but what can happen is that one day... Where things went differently. Suddenly in the mind of that person. And maybe one or two other people. She might speak to about that. This guy is not helpful. This guy's kind of you know. Focused on himself and his things. And actually even that he wasn't focused on himself. He wanted to be faithful to God. And faithful to his word. But we live in a world. Where it's just hard to understand people's hearts. And it's so easy to judge. Right. Who's a good judge? Yeah, there we go. Uh, even those of us who say, okay, I'm not going to rush to judgment of others. Even if you don't do it deliberately. Yeah. You're still thinking, jerk. You're still thinking it a little bit. It swells. Uh, you know, I, I don't mean to, 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 to be flippant about it, but the reality is and, and, and that we even have to coach ourselves. You know, they may be having a tough day. I have no idea what they're going through. I don't even know if they slept last night. I don't know if they got an emergency call in the middle of the night about uh, their father having a stroke. I don't know what's going on. But sometimes all we think is, they weren't very nice to me. Okay. Um. What a blessing that Barnabas shows that kind of mercy and second chance towards his cousin. Now let's move on in the text uh, to verse, the end of verse 27. End of verse 27, we, we move on from, uh, we, we first of all saw the joining in Jerusalem. Then, then we see Barnabas the bringer. And now we move into what I would call courageous communication. Look what it says at the end of verse uh, 27 says this, uh, as he's telling about what he did, it says, how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, we talked about that before. It's not just preaching. It's the name of Jesus that matters. You know, it's not just stories. Everything is rooted in Jesus. Apart from the cross, apart from his righteousness, there's nothing else that matters. He remains the head of the church. And, and, and we've got to be strong about this issue. Because sometimes it becomes about right and wrong and good deeds and, and, and sinfulness. And, and all these other things begin to take precedence over Christ. Who ought in all things have preeminence. So let's not lose that. Now, in Christ, there is much motivation to turn from sin and to devote ourselves to good works and the love of the brethren. Sure, but in the midst of it, we can't, mustn't ever lose Christ. We mustn't lose sight of him. Remember, we are to fix our eyes upon Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father. 
that has to continually be that. The, because otherwise, soon, the motive for good works becomes maybe the appreciation of others. They, uh, they think good of me. They like me. They esteem me. They respect me. You know, and then we begin to take pride in our good works. In a sense, you get what I'm saying? And there becomes the, the term pride, even as we looked at it this morning. We become inflated, you know, swell up, you know. And, and, and I'll use a different word because it has a stronger negative connotation. Bloated, you know. Nobody wants to become bloated, right? You know, I've never heard anyone say that in a positive way. You know, I'm feeling very bloated today. No, anytime, that's not good. But that's the, that's the sense of what can happen when we're not any longer looking at Jesus. Because when we look at him and we look at what we've done, we're still saying, wow, my works are so, so few and so weak in comparison to him. And so there's no, there's no inflating, there's no bloating because I'm, Stopped by my boasting in him. Right? That's how it ought to be. But look at this. This uh, uh, I also want to note this. Here in verse 27, if you use the ESV, it says preached boldly. In verse 29, uh, uh, 27, uh, it said preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Verse 28, it says preached boldly in the name of the Lord. Now, I just want to make this little clarification. I'm not saying that the Bible's wrong. The Bible's never wrong. But sometimes our translations don't do perfectly. This is not the common word for preaching. All right? This is simply, more simply translated, he spoke out boldly. He spoke forth courageously. And I wish the translators have gone, had gone that way because by saying preaching, what are so many sweet, sweet saints going to say? I ain't called to be a preacher. You know, that ain't my calling. I ain't called to be a preacher. You called to be a preacher, right? It happens. Yes, this is not talking about who is or is not called to be a preacher. This is what a disciple does. And a disciple of Christ speaks out boldly in the name of Christ. It is a courageous communication. Indeed, it is an audacious announcement. There is none like it. Now, is it always going to be well received? No. I want to note this. Not only is it it's a courageous communication, it's a clear communication. What he's doing, he's not telling a bunch of stories. He's not getting convoluted. He's not getting into to extreme details, trying to, to defend the historicity of no historicity. I think it can be defended, but even if you defend it, believing in the ark does not save you. There is only salvation in what? There's one name. The name of Jesus, speaking out boldly in the name of Jesus, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. So I'll often get to Christ as soon as possible. Now, the world is going to try to detract you with supposed humanly wisdom and other things. Get to Christ and the message of the cross as soon as you can. You know, and so they say, well, I don't believe that God exists. 
and say, well, let me tell you why I'm a Christian. And you tell them the gospel. Well, that, that's not an argument about whether or not God exists. Well, if God didn't exist, then why would he have sent his son? Why would Jesus prove to be fully God and fully man by living righteously and giving up his life and taking it up again? <laughs> what? Yeah. Get to Jesus as soon as possible. It's not just courageous and bold. It's clear. And remember, it's not designed merely to offend or upset. It's not designed simply to combat their wrong ideas. It is to clearly communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. That said, it might offend. Courageous communication. That is clear communication can be cutting communication. Sometimes the cutting is in a good way. On the day of Pentecost, as they heard it, they were cut to the heart and they repented and turned. At other times, um, you cut someone, what happens? Yeah, they, uh, they get angry. They retaliate. They get upset. They, they, they begin to pull out their weapons, you know, and, and, and you've cut them with a sword, but they just pulled out a gun, you know, and it, it, it can be severe. And that is to an extent what happened here, because what does it say? Verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. It's like, oh my, uh, so again, he, now this is, this is pretty fun. Why was he, what was he doing in Jerusalem uh, in his younger days? He was trying to kill those who named the name of Christ. Why was he going to Damascus? To get those people intent on their death and destruction. After he begins speaking in Damascus, what ends up happening? They try to kill him that he has to be let down in a little basket out the window and escape. Now he goes to, so he whose design it was to kill, now every time he courageously speaks, what's happening? They try to kill him. Now I do hope on your behalf that that will not be your regular experience. Now, that was not always Paul's experience. His experience when he preached the, uh, the word of God initially in, in Berea was beautiful, wonderful. They received the word. They searched the scriptures. It, it was a rich thing. Not so much. Things were tougher in Lystra and Derby, you know, as he gets stoned and then carries on. So what it's going to be, sometimes he would be in a place and there would be a massive uh, uh, early reception of it. Sometimes there would be a wholesale rejection and riot because of it. <laughs> but you know what he still did every time he went to a new town? He spoke boldly in the name of Christ. And I do want to remind you of this. He writes to the saints saying, pray for me that I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. Because what happens? You know, some of us may say, why does he need to say that? I mean, he was speaking boldly, seems from day one. Yeah, but I, think about it. Enough whippings and stonings 
and beatings. You might. <laughs> I, I got a message to tell you today. Oh boy. Is today another beating day? Is today another stoning day? Is today another whipping day, another imprisonment day? Oh, I don't know. I mean, could that come into his mind sometimes as he enters a place and has the opportunity to speak? So that's why he says what? Pray that I may have boldness. So some of us may say, you know what? I'm just not wired that way. That's okay. <laughs> we don't have to be wired that way. God can give us boldness. It seems other than Peter, many of the early apostles were not wired that way. They were hiding in locked room. But then what happens when the Spirit of God is poured out on them? They go forward with boldness. They speak and they speak and the gospel and the word spreads and spreads. What courageous communication. Lastly, I want to draw your attention to our last point this morning. And that is to uh, a meaningful multiplication. That is in verse 31. Look what it says. Now this is after they have taken him once again. And secretly got him out of Jerusalem and sent him back to Tarsus. Uh, so, so, so far each time they have sought to kill him and he's had to escape. He had, since, since the uh, martyrdom of Stephen, really through the conversion of Saul and the communication of Saul in Jerusalem, through that whole season, there had been turmoil. Right? James had killed. Peter had been arrested. All of these. I mean there had been just. Tribulation and onslaught. In these early days. Great difficulty. But now. God is pleased. To give them a season of peace. I just want to remind you of this. When. The weather is clear. Comfortable, pristine, a nice 75 with a gentle breeze and the occasional cloud. Is God present among his people? When there is a storm and a tempest of great severity and hail and tornadoes and floods. Is God present among his people? Yeah, he said, I will not leave you or forsake you. So I do want us to not miss something here. Sometimes we have the tendency to think, well, things went well, God was pleased. Things went bad, God was not pleased. Well, God was pleased, but Stephen was stoned to death. God was pleased, but Paul was arrested. So the outcome doesn't necessarily speak of God's pleasure. The word tells us what is God's pleasure and we persevere whatever comes. And when what comes, we understand it comes by God's own peculiar and personal providence. In his secret wisdom, he determines what will be. If you've ever read, and I'm sure you have in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there is a time and season for everything. Some of you who were alive as far back as 1965 probably remember the song by the birds. 
that there is a time for everything, a season, a time to laugh and a time to cry, a time to all that ver that song was. It was stealing lyrics from God's word, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. All of these things God has granted for us seasons of tribulation and seasons of refreshing seasons of mourning and seasons of comfort. Seasons of, of, of sojourning and seasons of steaming, seeming stability. It's all in God's hands and that's good and that's glorious. And certainly we can thank him when we come into that peaceful season. But even when things are not well, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. We still must say, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we worship him. But it is encouraging to know that at times wonderful things do happen in our earthly experience. It says in verse 31, the church throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace. So for a brief season, there was a little bit of let up in the persecution that took place. And it was being built up. I like that because it, it when circumstances are no longer crushing us, we don't just cruise. We don't just lay back and relax and enjoy. We work. In the midst of that time, they were being built up. That is a construction metaphor. That they were engaging in this work. Meaningful multiplication involves being built up in the most holy faith. Growing in our wisdom and knowledge of the word and of, of what Christ would teach for us. But it's not done. Not only what did they have peace being built up. But walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I just want to say this very briefly as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Now, some people try to... There is a kind of fear we ought not have. We don't fear men. Because they can't do anything but hurt our body. Which to some of us still seems a bit fearful. I get it. But ultimately it's not a fear that can consume us. And so we might go so far. It says in 1 John. First love casts out all fear. And some people may say there's no place for fear at all. Among the children of God. That's not true. We ultimately need not fear final judgment. When we are in Christ, we are forgiven. When we are united to him, it is a bond that is absolutely unbreakable. It is a cleansing and a clothing in the righteousness of Christ that absolutely cannot be soiled with regard to our standing and acceptance before God. Cannot be. But there is a fear we are to have. So we fear not final judgment. But there is a fear that is part of our life. There is a warning for example. In the scriptures. It says. Um, says these words. Um, in Romans 3. Of those who are in sin. In Romans 3.18 it says. There is no fear of God before their eyes. A fear of God is. They don't, they don't know that they are answerable to him. They don't know that every thought is known to him. Every motive is clear to him. Word counted by him. Remember in the day of the final judgment, what? The books will be opened up and they will be judged according to deeds done in the body. That's no mess. We are told, we are 
people are, Jesus warns of people being judged for their careless words that they have uttered. No light thing, no little thing. And so we understand we live before God. And we do so with, with a joy. Now the fear of God, this carries with it a Jewish sense that I'm just going to give you a snippet. And we end for the day. Uh, for the Jew, the idea of fear wasn't just some sort of a, a, a trembling and, and, and an anxiety and, and a weak needness. No. It, it also involved, as, as we often know, a sense of absolute reverence and awe. But not just a sense of reverence and awe. But a fear of him. The one that I revere and the one that I'm in awe of is looking upon me. Even now. I mean, because I was talking with, with a man at the, at the fire conference and he was saying he was talking to this family and, and trying to get, help them. He was, the husband and wife were having a tendency, it seems, to say less than kind things to one another. Apparently that happens in some marriages, right? Occasionally a, a, a harsh tone, a mean, mean word, unpleasantries are exchanged, to put it in the least, right? We know that. And, but here's the question. If I happen to be over at your house for dinner, would you have that same conversation with me sitting at the dinner table? Or would that restrain your words? And, and if your conversation would be restrained because I am there, I'm nobody. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not significant. I'm not important. But uh, you might restrain it so as not to bring yourself shame in front of me or maybe some degree of, of appreciation and respect for the service that I, I do. For, but who is God? And is he there? Does he hear that, that, that communication that's being exchanged? Does he hear those harsh words and those harsh tones? Does he hear that cheapness and selfish spewing? Does he hear it? Yeah, he does. You know, um, a fear of God says what? No, not going to do that. I always say that. You know what? If I'm sitting next to you and you're on your phone and, or on the computer, you're, you're not clicking that link. You're not, you're not typing in that website if I'm sitting next to you at your computer. But I'm not there. And nobody's there. So wrong. So wrong. It's never that nobody's there. God is there. And, and, and as those who fear him, revere him, he's the one that we don't want to disappoint. He's the one that we don't want to displease. I mean, if you wouldn't do it because I'm there, blah. I mean, you shouldn't do it because he's there, right? And so this is that sense of walking in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The simple explanation as I close and we move to the Lord's Supper is this. Fear is this. It is the loving, reverential obedience and worship of our lives. All of our life is seen as a time of worship, a time of obedience, a time of reverence, a time of honoring every moment. That's why it's called walking 
in the fear of. It's every step, every moment, every process. Joining in Jerusalem, they just were hesitant to receive it, either doubting him or maybe to some degree even doubting the power of God to absolutely change people. Barnabas the bringer, oh, he'll bring whatever he can, whoever he can, whatever he has. There's a sense in which I almost, you say Barnabas the bringer, but you're tempted to say Barnabas the giver. Then we see courageous, clear, and even cutting communication. And lastly, they multiplied, but it was a meaningful multiplication. Not just more people, but they were being built up in the faith. They were themselves walking in the fear of the Lord. To just, to just fill up seats with people who are just taking up space, that's not... That's not any good there are there are apparently situations where people can fill up stadiums you know you know former sports venues can be filled with people who have no daily desire to earnestly follow christ so what's the point that's not meaningful multiplication that that's meaningless multiplication that's deceived non-disciples and we worry and we fear for that let's pray